Again. Open your Bibles with me. You're wonderful. You're inspired. You're inerrant. You're infallible. You're all-sufficient. Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. I pray this week was a week of growth for us as our believers. It is our heart's desire given to us by the Holy Spirit, worked out and wrought of the Spirit to be more like Christ today than we were last week. Many thanks to Brady, of course, and Diana for leading us in song. Theologian A.W. Tozer famously said, if worship bores you, you are not ready for heaven. When we join with the saints in song here together, we are experiencing the closest thing to heaven we can get here on earth. So let us let that inform your heart and your mind as we sing and we make melody in our hearts unto the Lord. Well, many are familiar with the 23rd Psalm that we sang about even this morning in our last song. Many could recite it from memory. But sometimes in my study, I find that the familiar sometimes can callous me to the beauties that made these songs so well loved in the first place. So consider the 23rd Psalm in the last verse, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. I was struck that while we often look up in prayer as we should, while we cry out for the day's travails to the Lord who sits on the on high, which is good and right all along, all while we've been doing that, we've been given a heavenly escort. While we were tempted this week to fret or to fear or to worry, what does the psalmist say was on our left and on our right the whole time? Well, on one side, we see mercy, don't we? Mercy. I'm constantly being pursued. I'm followed and protected by the truth that God is not going to give me what I deserve. Mercy is following you. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, if multiple times a week you get this nagging thought of whether or not God has saved you, I want to give you two arrows for your quiver. Saints, where else in life have you ever worried about losing something you never possessed? I asked that someone recently when we were having a discussion together about the things of God and they were struggling with assurance of salvation. And what probably seemed like a very odd question, I reflected, I said, do you ever worry about losing your Rolex? I said, huh? Do you ever worry about losing your Rolex? I said, no, I don't have a Rolex. Exactly. Exactly. You don't worry about losing it because you never possessed it. Those who are lost rarely go around worrying about their salvation. Now go forth and serve the Lord. The psalmist says that we are pursued, that we are followed, that we are flanked by mercy. The ever-present truth that God is not going to give me what I deserve because he has already put it on Christ. That truth is the escort on your left. If you are in Christ, ever present, right there, looking over your left shoulder, there is mercy following you. What about my right shoulder? What else does the psalmist say is following me? One of the most beautiful words in all of the Hebrew language, hesed. Hesed is following me. Hesed means goodness, kindness, gentleness. Goodness, kindness, and gentleness are walking right behind you. 
And not the goodness of man that's here today or gone tomorrow. It's not the kindness from others that can be stained with other motives. We have the pure, undefiled goodness, kindness, and gentleness of God pursuing and following us. That's what's on your right. God's incredible mercy is on your left. And that's on your right. You're never alone. And saints, these attributes that are with us, that are encamped around us, are there in complete perfection. It's God's mercy. It's God's goodness. It's God's kindness pursuing us, following us and reminding us, comforting us. You have heavenly escorts through this life if you are in Christ. So be at rest. Be at peace. Be bold and be brave. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we happened upon a scene that some listening might not have been familiar with. It was titled in Scripture, The Feeding of the 4,000. Now, many are famously familiar with the feeding of the 5,000, but sometimes it's easy to confuse these two events. And what we witnessed, what we witnessed was the end, really, of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. He's gone a full 120 to 150 miles in Gentile territory, making this huge circle. Of course, beginning in Tyre with the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter. He went up through Sidon. He went back around to Decapolis, home of the now healed demoniac of the Gadarene. And here with the soil now having been tilled by that great evangelist, that demoniac of the Gadarene, this healed, formerly demon-possessed man, he's gone on a preaching spree in Decapolis, doing as Jesus commanded him, right? To go and tell your countrymen what the Lord has done for you. And he did. And now we have these open, willing hearts as Jesus has come to Decapolis. And isn't that such a contrast to the Jews of Galilee and of Capernaum? And these people, they stayed with Jesus for three days, didn't they? Remember that? Three days. Women, children, elderly, all with no food. No food whatsoever. And Jesus had compassion on them. Much like Jesus performed four months ago in Jewish territory, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And what an experience that was for the disciples as well. Their remarkable response of the disciples to having no food for this for these people, the response seemed almost unthinkable, wasn't it, from the disciples? As we consider what they had just watched with the Jews and the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus did an identical act only four months ago. But we're reminded that it was not Jesus' power that they questioned in performing this miracle yet again for the Gentiles. It wasn't his power they questioned, it was his purpose. These were Gentiles. It never even entered into the disciples' mind that Jesus would ask them to break bread with the unwashed masses. No way. Jesus says, yeah, you are. And after receiving this bread multiplied in my very hands in front of your eyes, you're going to actually go and serve these Gentiles, all 16,000 of them. You're going to put that food right into their Gentiles' hands, and then you're going to sit down and you're going to eat with them as well. Well, it's really difficult for us in the modern West to appreciate how unthinkable this was for the disciples. You know, the dietary restrictions, the lines between Jew and Gentile, their entire identity as children of Abraham was wrapped up in this separation. 
even after all of this, going all the way forward to Acts, right? As Peter, he's staying in Simon the Tanner's house there. And God has to give him a vision about what? The foods that he's called clean as the walls between the Jews and the Gentiles are beginning to break down. That's how ingrained this dietary stuff is. And yet Jesus did it. The disciples took that bread that was multiplied in their presence, which was a creative and a natural miracle, and they served those they would formerly have called enemies. Yet just as with the Jews, after they were done, we saw that Jesus and his disciples, they left very promptly from there, didn't they? Probably because they were wanting to do what the Jews did, and that was to crown him king. Well, Jesus is king. But he's not king on our terms. He's king on his terms. And so they immediately get in the boat, verse 10, and cross over to Dalmanutha, which is back in the Galilee area, back into Jewish territory. To mean the circle's been completed. And Jesus is just coming home for a very short time. Keep in mind that we're now less than a year to the cross at this point. As we begin looking at our two-part series this morning, it's going to encompass all the way to verse 21. And in this, we're going to see spiritual blindness. That is both a blindness unto death, and that is a blindness that is slowly being removed by the sovereign grace of a very good God. In these two scenes over the next week that we will see falls every person who has ever lived. Every person listening right now is in one of these two camps. Those who have ears, yet because they will not hear, they cannot hear. Those who have eyes, yet because they will not see, they cannot see. And we will also see those who have beheld. As Paul writes, the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Those that are being saved, yet are in the process of sanctification where we need the intervention of the Holy Spirit to remove the veils that continue to shadow us. And both of these, represented in both the Pharisees and the disciples that we're going to see in our series. The Pharisees first, then the disciples. And we pray that the Lord will illumine this text, that we, that we will allow it to wash over us, to convict us, and to encourage us. Thus, we're going to be greeted today by some old friends, my favorite. The Pharisees, the Pharisees. Yet what we encounter today is special. Something is different about this time and this encounter that is unlike any of the other clashes that we've seen. So stay tuned for that. Jesus and his disciples have now landed their craft back into home territory. And this is where we pick up our scene today. So with that, let's have a look at our text. Mark 8, 11 through 13. Mark 8, 11 through 13. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we are humbled to pray in so many times here recently, these are difficult words 
These are difficult texts. Lord, not only for the preacher, but for the hearts that would receive them. And so we pray for both of them this morning. We ask for clarity of thought. We ask that the Holy Spirit would do its work to find to make the arrow find its mark, that you would attend to your text by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we've mentioned in many other examples, you know, most stories in Mark, with the exception of about three scenes, have a contemporary reporting in the other three Gospels. And that's wonderful for us. You'll often hear me referring to us or using the phrase rotate the diamond, right? You've heard me say that. Let's rotate the diamond. And this comes from the Puritan comparison of the Gospels to a lovely four-faced diamond that you can see in, as different light is refracted. You get different angles of it on different cuts, just like a beautiful diamond. But there's a danger in this from an expository standpoint. We are preaching through Mark. And we want to capture Mark's telling of the story. Now, he included the details he did for a reason, and he excluded others. So we want to be very careful about looking too heavily at other gospels accounts in some instances, because at some point we cease to exposit Mark itself. But there are times when it is appropriate to look at the other sides of the diamond to capture the nuance. And today is going to be one of those times. If we rotate that diamond to Matthew's gospel, we will find a more thorough telling of this incident with the Pharisees, specifically in Matthew 16 and Matthew 12. So we're going to peek into Matthew for some additional light to capture the meaning of this very tragic encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. But diving into our text now, beginning with verse 11. And the Pharisees came out. Now we need to stop there. The Pharisees came out because a lot is buried in that phrase right there. First, let's make sure we have a clear picture of who the players are here. Mark tells us that the Pharisees are coming out. But is that all? Rotate the diamond to Matthew 16, if you will. You can turn there in your Bibles quickly since we will be there a few times today. Matthew 16, verse 1, what do we see? the Pharisees and Sadducees came up. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came up. Well, now that's a little different, isn't it? And why does that matter? Well, number one, these two groups hated each other. They absolutely hated each other. They had enormous theological differences, enormous political differences. They could not stand to be in the same room. And anytime you see these groups together in Scripture outside of this scene right here, they're at each other's throats. Both thought the other were complete heretics. So that makes this really interesting, doesn't it? They both come out together. Hatred will breed some strange bedfellows, won't they? And we witness that all the time in our current culture. If you have a common enemy, they're often willing to overlook tremendous differences and obstacles between them with the aim of vanquishing a common foe. One of the most glaring examples of this in modern culture would be the LGBTQ lobby and the Muslim community, for example. It is fascinating. In many Islamic countries, they will throw homosexuals off roofs if they are found out. They'll be stoned, and at a minimum, you'll be kicked out of your family if you are found to be engaged in same-sex behavior. And yet the LGBTQ lobby is completely silent toward Islam as a system, and toward Muslims. These two polar opposite groups have come together with a common enemy. They are willing to overlook the gravest of differences because of the one they hate the most. 
Both groups, both lobbies, though they would reject the label as such, both desire to wipe out the Christian worldview. Their hatred for Christianity exceeds their loathing of one another, and so they hold their fire on each other. Search Google for as long as you like. You will rarely, if ever, find the gay lobby criticizing Islam. Interesting, isn't it? They have a common enemy, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so it is today with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There is a force strong enough, a hatred strong enough to get them to set aside their differences to defeat this fox in their henhouse. The fraudulent carpenter's son from Nazareth. That's leading all of our people astray. Well, if we look back in our text, we'll see that they came out. The word came out here. Now, this is actually a military term. This is a military word telling us about how they came out, meaning they were formed up, that they were marching toward Jesus with purpose and intent. Basically, hut two, three, four, right? Let's go get this guy. And this was soon after they got out of the boat. In fact, they may nary have gotten on the shore before this exchange takes place. And this is telling because Pharisees and Sadducees don't hang out together. They don't grab coffee together. And yet here they are already together and moving on Jesus in military fashion. They knew he was coming. They might have even had networks of spies around sending information back. We don't know. But what these, but what do these men coming with a military bearing when they confront Jesus? What does it say? And they began to argue with him that they were testing him. So the disposition of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is not one of a desire to learn or to understand or to find common ground. It was a desire to trap him. It was a desire to discredit him. A good lesson for all of us in any disagreement with a spouse or anyone else, first seek to understand before needing to be understood. Any conflict, understand first, then seek to be understood. That's not what we see here. This is open hostility, marched upon with military urgency, and they mean to trap Jesus. They mean to discredit him in front of the people. How do they intend on doing this? Well, this is the problem, because Jesus has already performed numerous miracles. They couldn't deny this. Thus, they were forced earlier. What did they do? They attributed those acts to Satan himself. Committing, of course, the unpardonable sin, which is attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil, despite the blinding light staring you right in the face. Well, they can't deny this, and the people love it. So what's strategy number two? We're going to see it in the language of their challenge to Jesus. What do they say? Seeking from him a sign from heaven. Matthew says the same thing. This is where it gets interesting. Diabolical even. Give us a sign from heaven. Well, two things we need to recognize in this request. One, a miracle is not a sign and a sign is not a miracle. One more time. A miracle is not a sign and a sign is not a miracle. If we look at Jewish teaching, a miracle was just that. It was a miracle. But the presence of a miracle did not necessitate the presence of truth. The presence of a miracle did not necessitate the presence of truth. Consider the prophets in the Old Testament. They were sometimes given the ability to perform various miracles for specific reasons. But it was not the miracles that authenticated them, was it? It was their prophecy coming true. That was the sign from heaven that they were truly a prophet. Unfortunately, like so many things in Judaism, this led to some errant theology. 
It was a common teaching that God was basically in the heavenly miracle business and the demons were actually in the earthly miracle business. Not exclusively, but demons had the capability to perform earthly miracles. In a very, and in a very incomplete and deceptive sense, they are correct. Think about Pharaoh's magicians, right? Pharaoh's magicians, could they perform miracles in a sense? Yes. The demonic are not without power. Now, it's a counterfeit power, and it's used only with deception in mind, but they're not without power. Pharaoh's magicians did mimic many of God's actions through Moses. That's where some of this errant teaching comes from. So Jesus has done all of these earthly miracles. Yes, okay, but Satan can do that, they say. We don't want a miracle. We want a sign. We want a sign. Do something cosmic. Turn the sun dark. Make a star appear in the sky. Don't give us that earthly stuff. Demons can do that. If you're Messiah, do it in the heavens. Do it in the heavens. That's what they're saying here. Well, there's a few problems or considerations with this. One, Jesus is commanded by no man. By no man. It reminded me of an old movie where a man, he's having a a tirade against God, and he points to a glass on the table, and he says, just knock over this glass, God, and I'll be a believer. Of course, the glass stays right there. It stays right there. God is not commanded to act by the will of man. That's our own hubris and pride that thinks so. We do not force God's hand. It's like the man who's driving down the, a winding road and he's wrestling with God and says, if you're real, I'm, I'm letting go of the wheel and you'll have to save me. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to run into a tree. That's what's going to happen. God is not commanded by men. Jesus is not commanded by the Pharisees, by wicked and spiritually blinded men. Secondly, Jesus has given signs from the heavenlies, hasn't he? How about his baptism? A voice coming from the heavens. The Holy Spirit descending like a dove. That's exactly the kind of sign that they're asking for here. It's already been done. Done on Jesus' terms, not theirs. Were there Pharisees present at Jesus' baptism? We know that there were. We know that there were. When someone is hard-hearted, no amount of evidence will convince them. If they're spiritually blind, you can draw them a roadmap and they will just stare at you. Even had it been Jesus' desire to perform a sign in the heavenlies here, it would have made zero difference. It would have made zero difference. In fact, it would have been to their judgment if Jesus had done a heavenly sign here. One more nail in their coffin. One more evidence that Messiah stood right in front of them. For us, it's every gospel presentation. It's every sermon. It's every pricking of the heart that a person rejects. One after the other. It's another nail. It's another nail. And now because they will not obey, they cannot obey. Because they will not hear or see, they cannot hear or see. God did not cause their disobedience and their hard heart. Human inability is the result of human disobedience. We need to pause on this concept for a moment. Because we're leading into a situation with the, with the Pharisees here where God is going to give these men over. He's going to give them over. When Jesus walks away from these men at the end of our text, he's walking away forever. Their spiritual death is already sealed. So who sealed their fate? Did God seal their fate? Or did their disobedience and hard-heartedness seal their fate? 
How can these Pharisees be responsible if it is God that is giving them over to this hard-hearted, depraved mind? Wouldn't that make God ultimately responsible for their condition? Couldn't God have just made them elect and He didn't? So didn't God actually condemn them? Texts like ours today where Jesus gives these men over truly and finally raise these kinds of questions for folks that have not wrestled their way through some of these more difficult doctrines. Dr. Jim Oreck, a good friend uh, who some in here know as well over at Southern Seminary, he has a, a good story that, some, that demonstrates some of these truths, that, that human ability is the result of human disobedience, that God did not send someone to hell, that they chose to go there just as everyone would if God did not intervene. Though the story goes from uh, Dr. Jim, he says, there was a father, there was a father who said to his sons one morning, Boys, I want you to be sure to mow the grass today. Also, I poured a section of concrete in the sidewalk early this morning, and the cement is still wet. Stay out of it. And one more thing your mother has told me, that you boys are wearing your headphones all day, and this is impossible for her to get your attention when she needs you. So do not wear your headphones today. I'll be back this afternoon. Later that afternoon when the father returned, guess what? The grass had not been mowed, and he sees his sons standing in the fresh concrete, which is now hardened around their feet. And guess what? They're wearing their headphones. They're wearing their headphones. And his wife meets him at the door, and she says, I have not been able to get those boys to do a thing today. They will not answer me when I call. He goes outside to where the boys are standing in the concrete, and he motions for them to take out their headphones. They take him off and he says to them, boys, I thought I told you to mow the grass today. And they answer, dad, we couldn't do it. We couldn't obey. We're stuck in this concrete, which is hardened around our feet and we can't move. Their dad says, and your mother tells me that she's been calling you and that you haven't answered her. And they said, dad, we haven't heard her honest. We've been listening to our headphones all day. Their inability to obey and their inability to hear are a result of their disobedience. In the illustration, as a result of their disobedience, the boys are physically unable to obey and hear their parents. And in the case of sinners, disobedience has led not to a natural inability, but to a moral inability to obey and hear God. Saints, all the essential components of human nature are still intact in a rebellious sinner. But their rebellious ideas, our perverted desires, and their sinful choices render them unable to come to Christ. Now, many have the question of why would Jesus call people to himself? Like he did testifying to these Pharisees so many times, calling people that cannot, in fact, come to him unless Jesus opens their eyes. Saints, to learn that you cannot save yourself is step one in salvation. It's step one. We can now see ourselves as we are, and we can see God as He actually is, and that is sovereign. Not halfway sovereign, not sovereign but subject to the willy-nilly free will of man. No, this Bible says that He is completely sovereign. And when Jesus gives these Pharisees over once and for all today in our text, he is good and right to do it. God is sovereign and man is responsible. 
And that's a message unto itself. But these scenes tend to evoke those kinds of questions. Well, back to our text. How does our long-suffering Savior respond here in verse 12? Verse 12. And sighing deeply in His Spirit. How many of us remember the deep sigh that Jesus gave when healing the deaf and the mute man as well? Being reflective of the pain that was in His heart to see the effects of sin on a fallen world plaguing His creation. And here to witness the hard hearts of the Pharisees. Jesus knows what hell is. Nobody speaks of hell more in the New Testament than Jesus Himself. And this is the eternal fate of these Pharisees, and Jesus knows it. He knows it. These Pharisees here in our text, who are in that torment, even as we speak, have not even begun to begin. There's no end. There's no end. Just as our heavenly home is forever, what do we sing when we've been there 10,000 years? So is hell. And though many struggle with this, hell is eminently just for our rebellion. If hell seems unreasonable to my mind, I have yet to see my sin as God sees my sin. Jesus gives a deep sigh because it grieves Him. It grieves Him. Yet Jesus' response here is vintage. See, the Pharisees thought, what did the Pharisees think? They thought that they were the ones trapping Jesus, asking for a sign. If he refuses, we prove that he's a fraud. And if he agrees to it, well, we know he can't do it because he's not the Messiah. So now we can prove that he's a fraud either way. Either way, we've got this guy. Look at Jesus' response. What does he say? He said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Don't ask me for a sign. It will only add to your judgment. Not only is Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, He's really laying it out for all of Israel. This generation, this generation and all who follow you. Why are you asking for a sign? I could give you a hundred signs and you would not believe. I've performed every messianic miracle in your midst. You will not see. No, the brighter the light, the more you slink back into the darkness. I don't know how many of you ever have ever had a filling done at the dentist. I can't stand the dentist, but they put that pasty goop into your drilled out cavity, don't they? And then what do they do? They take that instrument that emits a high powered UV light. And what happens? That high power UV light begins to harden the fillings. And they go and they check it with the pick. Not hard enough yet. What do they do? They give it another blast of light. The more light they give it, the harder it gets. That's the heart of the unregenerate. That's the heart of the self-righteous. That's the stench of pride. And here they are asking for yet another blast of light. No way. It will only further harden your heart. It will only increase your judgment. And I'll not throw the pearls down to swine. And in this case, but in this case, the die has been cast. The heart is cold and hard. You've often heard me say that people are either potatoes or eggs, haven't you? Potatoes or eggs. That the boiling water of life, the trials of life are either going to soften you or they're going to harden you. One of the two. And when we talk about people, we're really talking about their hearts, aren't we? We're talking about their hearts. The seat of your will. The heart is what's actually the potato or the egg. 
And the light and the rolling heat of the gospel, it keeps coming at you. It's having an effect. Even here, even now, the word of God preached. You are either walking out of here this morning much harder or much softer. And friends, it's not a cliff you fall off of. This is a slow fade. This egg boils slow, incrementally. Every time we fail to listen to that still small voice, when we succumb to temptation, is another layer of callous on the heart. Oh, but God says that I will remove that callous heart. I will remove that heart of stone and give you what? A heart of flesh. A heart of flesh. But sometimes, even as believers who love Jesus, we let that heart of flesh that's pink and soft get a layer of callous on there, don't we? Like a dog that returns to their vomit, we find ourselves blocking out the voice of the Holy Spirit and returning to our sin and another callous forms. Saints, our time this morning is aloe for the heart. It's aloe. The water of the word that's poured over us that refreshes our hearts, that renews our hearts. If we will confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful to re-moisturize that heart. And that's our prayer this morning. We desire that renewed sensitivity to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And why do we cry out for that this morning? The answer is in Jesus' response. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. We must stop there. We have to ponder the absolute tragedy that we're witnessing right here. You know, often when I'm sharing my faith, living here in the Bible Belt, I would say that six out of ten are are genuinely nice folks who bear some sort of cultural identification with Christianity. But they're not born again. They've not been renewed. They've not been regenerated. And oftentimes, one of the verses I, I most often lead them to is Matthew 7, 21 through 23. It's a very famous verse and one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now these verses are roundly considered to be the most terrifying in Scripture, even more so than the graphic depictions of hell that were given. In Scripture, we can call this the principle of the double knock. It's called the principle of the double knock. Here are the people in Matthew 7. What are they saying? They're saying, Lord, Lord, knock, knock. They're saying the name twice. In Hebrew, when you say a name twice, that denotes intimacy. It means that the people genuinely thought they knew him. When Jesus tells them to depart from his presence, they are well and truly frightened and confused. I know you. I was in church every Sunday. I taught Sunday school. I gave my tithe. I did this. I did that. Depart from me. I don't know you. It's a terrifying state. It's one that if you find yourself there this morning, I do not seek to relieve you of that fear. Let it drive you to the cross. Fear is a very good thing. Fear keeps us from doing all sorts of unwise things in our life. Fear the Lord. 
Fear the Lord. Jesus gave his disciples warning in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do to you. But I will warn you to whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. If this is not a message you're used to hearing, or perhaps it sounds harsh, friend, you're looking at it wrong. The question is not if Jesus was being harsh or not. The question is, is it true? And if it is true, then to warn you to flee from the wrath that is to come, to fear God, and to throw yourself on His mercy is the most loving thing that anyone has ever done for you. Ever. Ever. And it's in this state of delusion that the Pharisees find themselves in. Do we know God? Yeah, we know God. In fact, we're the keeper of His law. We're the guardians of it. We're the watchmen of it. Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. I'm giving you over. You would not hear, so you cannot hear. Their inability is the result of their disobedience. And saints, they didn't just barely miss heaven. They weren't seeking after Christ as their joy in their life and they just missed it a bit on the theology side of things. That's not what's happening here. This is the stubborn, willful refusal in the overwhelming light of the Son of God. Do not harden your heart as in the days of the rebellion. Because there's more to this verse, much more. Jesus does not just say, I will not give you a sign. Well, there's a sign, all right. But we're going to need to look at Matthew 16 to see it. Some of you may still be there in your scriptures. Look back there, Matthew 16, looking at verse 1, a quick review. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I like how one theologian here, he quipped, you're great meteorologists, but you're terrible theologians. So Jesus goes on here. Here's our key. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What is this? What does this mean? I'm giving you over, but a sign is coming, the sign of Jonah. A sign of Jonah. You're a wicked and an evil generation, so only one more sign is coming, the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, we're not left to speculate. Jesus tells us back in Matthew 12, where they're having a similar discussion. This is, so this is not the first time that the Pharisees have been rebuked in this manner. Matthew 12, 40 through 41, we'll put it on the screen. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. The sign of Jonah is the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. Say, well, why is that bad news? This almost sounds like a threat in our text, doesn't it? I'm abandoning you, and the only sign you're getting is the sign of Jonah. Please know this. 
The truth that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead is simultaneously the most wonderful and the most terrifying news in all of Scripture and in all of history. We call the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, but the good news for whom? It's good news for those who are being saved. That God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that He's put His stamp of approval on the pure sacrifice of the Lamb, proclaims that death and hell have been defeated. But it also proclaims that Jesus is King, that He is Lord, and that He is judge over all, and that all things have been brought into subjection to Him, and that He is the rock. And that rock is either going to be under your feet as a sure foundation to cling through in life's storms as your highest affection, or that rock is going to grind you to powder. That Jesus has risen from the dead is either the song of your heart or it is the sound of the gavel falling. The sign of Jonah is proclaimed here for us this morning. Jesus Christ was crucified. He died and was buried, and three days later, he rose again. We all must do something with that truth. It cannot be ignored. We either suppress it away one more time, pushing us toward the tragedy of the Pharisees, or we surrender to it, and we come in repentance and faith. There is no middle ground. The masses go to hell in the middle ground, coloring in the gray. Let us not be deceived. Yet, as we said, the great tragedy of this text is not in verse 12 that we just read. It's actually very subtle. The great tragedy is very subtle here in verse 13. Mark 8, verse 13. And leaving them. There it is. That's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. This is a pregnant phrase. It's speaking on two levels, even three levels. This is a decisive abandonment. No further attempts will be made. There will not be another friend reaching out to you. There will not be another sermon. He left them. You would not see. Now you cannot see. Their blindness is permanent. And Jesus embarked and he went away. There are no sadder words in scripture. Jesus went away. Pray that he not for us today. Pray that he be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. For those of you that have come to him in repentance and faith, the sign of Jonah has been applied to you. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has been imputed to your account. And that is good news. That is the greatest news. Today's text is also the greatest warning for us. Do not delay. Today is the acceptable day of salvation. Do not suppress it just one more time. There will come a day, and not just in eternity, something far off that you can keep on putting off in your mind, but in this life, these Pharisees were in this life that Jesus embarks on the boat and he goes away. But today is not that day. Today is not that day because you're here or you're listening online. What you do with it means everything. What you have done with Jesus Christ is the most important thing about you. Amidst all you think that defines you, gentlemen, you are actually marked by what you have done with Jesus Christ. Therein lies your eternity. So the question again, friends, is not if this is harsh, but is it true? And if it be true, this opportunity is the greatest of your life to come in repentance and faith. 
If that's you this morning, please come grab me after service or someone else. We would love to pray and to talk with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard the greatest news and the most terrifying news in all of history today. That you crucify, that you were crucified, that you died, that you were buried, and that you have risen again, that you are king. Heavenly Father, we ask that these words we know to some is the scent of life unto life and to others is the scent of death unto death. Heavenly Father, we pray that the heart would be renewed today. Lord, there are hearts of stone in here this morning that need to be removed and a heart of flesh be put in its stead. Only you can do that, God. That's a supernatural act that only you can do. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would attend to this word in our hearts as we chew it over this week. Heavenly Father, keep us until we can be together again. In your name we pray. Amen.